If you have your Bibles or scripture journals, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Gospel of Luke in chapter 17. We've been in chapter 17 for several weeks now. We'll conclude it uh, in our time together today. If you uh, don't have a scripture journal and you want one, there's one left on the welcome desk. Feel free to go grab that now or after service uh, to help you as we continue in this study. So last week we covered 17, just 20 and 21. And now uh, today we're going to go from 22 to 37. And it'll be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say I got it. it. All right, let's read this together. Gospel of Luke chapter 17, starting verse 22. The Holy Spirit says, And he, Jesus, said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things to be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. So last week, we began our time by considering how some have an obsession with the end of the world to such an extent that they make predictions about the timing and order of events and things like this. And I gave some examples from the last you know, 40 or so years of predictions, which inevitably follow the failure of those predictions. And almost all the ones that I gave you, all the predictions that I mentioned were from Christian sources, right? But the truth is, Christians aren't the only ones who have a preoccupation with the end of all things, are they? Uh, we said, to quote Russell Moore once more, there's something embedded in the human conscience that knows there's a day of reckoning. Therefore, it's not just a Christian thing or even a religious thing, but a human thing to think about the end of all things. And there are plenty of secular books and movies and TV shows that feature the looming end. And the, to heighten the drama, uh, it must be and can be prevented by human intellect and togetherness. Much of the media about the end of the world seems lately has to do with like post-apocalyptic wastelands, right? Anarchy, zombies, right? Planet of the Apes. Book of Eli, I Am Legend, Mad Max, The Walking Dead, World War Z, these like post-apocalyptic wastelands. There are also those that aren't post-apocalyptic as such, uh, but have to do with the impending end or destruction of the earth. So for instance, Armageddon, you guys remember that one? Uh, Deep Impact, which came out the same year, 
Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, Don't Look Up, just came out a couple years ago. And all the ones I just mentioned have the same premise, which is there's a gigantic meteor heading for the earth, which is, has the potential to end life as we know it, right? Well, my personal favorite in this vein of uh, the impending end of the world is a book by Douglas Adam, which, Adams, which later came a movie called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, it has one of the great opening paragraphs of any book. It goes like this. Far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small, unregarded yellow sun. Orbiting this at a distance of roughly 98 million miles is an utterly insignificant little blue-green planet whose ape-descended life forms are so amazingly primitive that they still think digital watches are a pretty neat idea. Now, within the next few chapters, as the people of Earth are going on with the business as usual, some huge yellow spacecraft start descending over the world, all over the world. And at first they're unnoticed, but eventually they got closer to the Earth's surface, and so close that they just kind of hung in the sky in much the same way that bricks don't, is what Adam says. Finally, as these spacecrafts are hovering over the Earth, Every hi-fi set, you guys remember those? Every radio, you remember those? Every television, every cassette recorder, you can tell us we're in the 80s, right? Every woofer turned itself on. Every tin can, dustbin, window car, wine glass, every sheet of rusty metal became activated as an acoustically perfect sounding board. Then this simple message came out to the whole world, okay? It said, as they are aware, there are plans to build a hyperspatial expressway through this star system, and Earth is one of those scheduled for demolition uh, to make way for it, okay? And the time for that demolition has arrived, and it will take two, less than two of your Earth minutes. And then the message was over, okay? Now, uncomprehending terror settled on the whole Earth. Panic sprouted, desperate, desperate fleeing panic, but of course, there's nowhere to go. Observing this, the invaders turned the PA on again, and they said there's no point in acting surprised about it. All the planning charts and demolition orders have been on display in your local planning department in Alpha Centauri for 50 years. So you've had plenty of time to lodge a formal complaint, but it's too late to make a fuss about that now. Then someone on Earth manned a radio transmitter, which someone, somehow got a message to the invaders, and the, the, nobody could hear it. And the PA came on one more time and said, what do you mean you've never been to Alpha Centauri? For heaven's sake, mankind, it's only four light years away. I'm sorry, but you can't be bothered to take an interest in local affairs. That your own, that's your own lookout. So essentially, the invaders had posted plans to demolish Earth in a place where no one on Earth knew existed and couldn't get to. So the plans to destroy Earth were published. They were put on display, but no one on Earth knew where they were or that they were even there. So there was a warning, right? But they were, in some sense, hidden. Now that they knew, however, it's too late, and now the earth is being destroyed in two minutes, and they are utterly helpless. The kingdom of God and the end of the age was our topic last week as we explored this part of Luke's gospel, and it will be our topic again today. Last week, Jesus told the Pharisees that they were missing that the kingdom had already shown up in his person. 
And here in the text before us, Jesus addresses his disciples regarding the kingdom of God showing up fully at the end of the age. And what do we find here? What we find here is that the end of the age will not come like we see in all the movies and books and TV shows. It won't come because of a meteor, nor will we experience a post-apocalyptic wasteland, nor even alien invaders making room for a superhighway. But like the way the world comes to an end in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it will come suddenly. It will be unmistakable. It will be seen and experienced by all people. And it will be inescapable. But unlike the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the fact that the world will end is not hidden in some office building on Alpha Centauri. The end is not going to be a surprise from God in a way that says, gotcha. Nor even is God hiding from us that the end is coming. The warning isn't only two minutes long, but has been available for thousands of years. Jesus is giving fair warning here that all people should heed. And what is that warning? It's that the world will eventually come to an end. And it will come to its end at his very own hand. So between now and then, he says, people must make a decision. And they, must be, they, must, they have been given fair warning that the age will eventually come to a close and only those who decide for Jesus will be vindicated in the end. Something else that is very clear in discussion about the end of the world with all these predictions that we've seen through the centuries with these books, with these movies and TV shows and all the rest of this, it is shockingly easy to think wrongly about the end. But Jesus in this text before us is helping us think rightly about the end to help keep us from falling into error if only we'll listen. So let's do this. Let's consider four points in the form of four things we should not do in relation to the end that will actually help us approach and think about the end of the age and the kingdom of God coming in fullness correctly. Okay, so four things. Number one, point one. Don't try to predict it, nor listen to those who do, okay? Point one, don't try to predict it, nor listen to those who do. So as the text opens up in verse 21, we have a shift of audience, don't we? In 20 through 21, I say 22, 20 and 21, we saw Jesus conversing with the Pharisees who asked when the kingdom of God is coming. And we said last week that Jesus told them that the kingdom of God had already come with him. That Jesus is not only the bringer of the kingdom of God, he is in some sense the kingdom of God shown up in a person. Now we also noted that the way that the New Testament talks about the kingdom of God is in two senses, already and not yet. So the kingdom has come with Jesus and it will come in fullness at the end of time, you see, or what is referred to as the consummation of the kingdom. So what we have is Jesus talking to the Pharisees about the already of the kingdom of God, and now here he shifts to talk, about, to talk to the disciples about the not yet. Are you with me? Of the kingdom and the important truths about its future consummation. So Jesus tells the disciples that they will long for the end of the age, they will long to see this, but will, but will not see it, and that people will take advantage of these desires and they will be looking for signs and symbols to point to and say, look here or look there. 
People will point to something or someone and say, see this and that sign. This is proof of that the days of the Son of Man are here. Okay, this is what he says. And what does Jesus tell them? Don't buy it. And don't go follow people who claim such things. Now look, you see this phrase, the days of the Son of Man. What is this? This is when Jesus, who is the Son of Man, will return and act as judge. Okay? This phrase, days are coming, was used often in the Old Testament to speak about the approaching judgment. And so Jesus is the promised one who will bring that judgment when he returns. When he returns, he will vindicate his saints. And the total final rule of Jesus as Messiah and cosmic king will be established. And Jesus says, you will desire for that day to come, right? You will long for the day that I come back and set up my eternal kingdom. Now, what Jesus isn't saying is don't long for the kingdom to come in fullness. That's not what he's saying. In fact, we, we know this can't be the case. In the model prayer, in Matthew 6, he tells us to earnestly pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Paul 2, praise, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So the desire for the kingdom to come and for the day of the Lord is a right and good one. So what is Jesus telling us not to do? He's telling us not to try to predict when that will be, okay? Or listen to people or follow to people who do. Remember what we talked about last week. The Pharisees expected the kingdom of God to come through signs and wonders, right? Through, through things that were clearly obvious that they could say, this is it. And Jesus said, that's not how the kingdom comes, now here, he's saying something similar, isn't he? He's saying people will look at the headlines. They'll look at world events. They'll look at the stars. They'll look at wars. They'll look at politics and economies. They'll look at natural disasters. Then they'll place them next to their Bibles and say, this is it. Or they'll say, look over there. This is surely it. He's saying to be neither one of those people who do that, nor listen to people who do. Now, again, you look back at the last couple hundred years of Western Christianity, and what will you see? You will see an increasing, an, an increase in people doing exactly what Jesus is saying not to do. Am I wrong? Constant predictions of the end. Constant looking at wars and rumors of wars and saying, this is the precursor to the end. Every time a new leader rises up who's slightly charismatic, people say, this is surely it. And people write these books about the end. This is big business. And they make these charts and they make these graphs and they make these predictions and they make these videos and they make these conferences and they say, look there. And people listen to them and they buy it. And they end up disappointed. While these guys leading the way in these predictions are swimming in gold coins like Scrooge McDuck. Right? And they're living in their palatial mansions because, they, because unsuspecting Christians have bought their snake oil. My friend, don't buy it. Jesus is saying, don't buy it. Jesus is telling us that when people predict such things, they should be neither given your attention nor your followership. Well, why? Why shouldn't they be given attention or followership? For one, they're constantly wrong. Every person in the last two millennia who said, look and see the end is here because of this or that sign has been incorrect. 
But for some reason, we have like chronological snobbery, don't we? Every successive generation thinks, well, they have may, may have been wrong, but surely we are right. Surely it's our generation that will see all these things come to fruition. And then what happens? A generation comes and a generation goes, and the people who made the doomsday predictions die with them. Another reason is because Jesus says the end won't happen like that. Is that not explicit here? It's explicit as it could be in this text. Look at verse 24. Jesus says it will happen like lightning strikes in the sky. In other words, and this is a key, okay? The coming of the Son of Man will be sudden, unpredictable, and above all, universally visible. Let me say that again. The coming of the Son of Man will be sudden, unpredictable, and universally visible. Alfred Plummer had a great line. He said, none will foresee it, and it will, and all will see it at once. None will foresee it, and all will see it at once. It will be sudden. It will be obvious. Is that not what Jesus is saying here? You don't need to do special math from Ezekiel and Daniel. Okay? You won't need to be able to identify this or that country from something you see in the Bible. You won't need to make, connect all kinds of dots to where if you don't, you'll miss what's really going on. And you won't even need to turn on the news and hear a newscaster say it's happening. Jesus is saying it will come independent of predictions and it will be obvious to everyone. No one will be confused as to what's happening. No one will be asking if now is the time or if this or that sign or wonder is true. No one will even be saying, look there, because everyone will already be what? Looking there. You guys remember those magic eye pictures from the 90s? What a time to be alive, right? For those who don't remember or never knew they existed, um, they were these computer-generated pictures that uh, when you first looked at them, they appeared to be like a jumbled mess, right? You look, it looked like nonsense. Uh, but there was a hidden 3D picture uh, within what this nonsense, okay? And the trick was you had to stare at it long enough or at a certain angle or sometimes, you know, people would print it real close to their face and they pull back slowly to see the hidden image that would become clear, right? Maybe you were with your friend at the mall. You guys remember those? And you saw one of these pictures, you're standing by them, and they see the hidden image, and you don't. It's kind of, there's actually a Seinfeld episode for you Seinfeld fans where Mr. Pitt gets obsessed with this. And they point and they say, look, you have to stare right here. Or you have to look at this angle. Or stare at this point, and you're, you're, you're not seeing it, right? Uh, it's hidden in some sense, and only if you look at the right way can you see it, but others might miss it because they're not looking correctly. You know, many today act like the signs of the end are like that. Like they're hidden unless you're looking at it from their perspective. If you're just not looking at it from the right way. The coming of Christ will not be like that. You can't miss his coming. Is that not clear from this text? It will not be hidden. It will not be a secret. It will be as obvious as lightning strikes that light up the whole sky. You can't miss it. You know, there were people like the Pharisees and scribes who missed Jesus' first coming, weren't there? 
They didn't think God's Messiah would be like Jesus. They wanted a military Messiah, not a homeless rabbi from Nazareth whose disciples were exclusively ragamuffins, and he'd hang out with people on the margins of society who would allow himself to be executed as an enemy of the state rather than overthrowing the state. So they missed Jesus' first coming, and so did a lot of others. No one is going to miss Jesus' second coming. People can miss the first, but they won't miss the second. It will be undeniable that Jesus is here to vanquish his foes and vindicate his saints. No one is going to say, is that Jesus? Is now his time to return? Everyone will know. And it will be sudden. It will be without warning so that no one can say, yes, I knew this was going to happen. All the signs are there. But there is something that must happen. Did you notice? Before the consummation of the kingdom can occur. This leads us to our point number two. Point number two, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the gospel. So, says Jesus, just as lightning strikes unmistakably and missably in the sky, so the coming of the Son of Man be. Son of Man will be. But first, what? We've established, right, that there's no timetable for his return and no one can predict it. The only timetable of Jesus' second coming that he gives is this. Do you see it? He must suffer many things, and be rejected by this generation. Now, there's a lot of significant things just in this one sentence, aren't there? Notice that it isn't just the Pharisees will reject him. It's not just the scribes who will reject him. It's not just that the religious leaders will reject him. It's not just that the occupying Roman government will reject him. It is what? This generation. See, we give Pharisees and other religious leaders in the Bible a hard time, rightfully so. They earned that, right, for how they approached Jesus. But it, it, it isn't just those at the top that rejected Jesus, was it? If you're paying attention, you'll see that when Jesus says things like, I am the bread of life, the crowd says, this is a little much, and they leave. We see crowds wanting Jesus' benefits, but not his person. We see them wanting a healing, but being told that they need to take up a cross and follow is a bridge too far, so they walk away. We see a rich young man told he needs to sell his stuff and give it to the poor and follow Jesus, and what does he do? Goes away sad. Some embraced Jesus, but many more rejected him than embraced him. And while we know the religious leaders were the ones who tried to get Jesus to get Jesus executed, it's still the crowd who shouted, crucify him. But as we said, Jesus is no hapless or unwilling victim. No one takes his life from him. He came to die. But even saying that he came to die, I'm not sure is strong enough. Look at his own words. The son of man, what? Must suffer many things. He must suffer. It is, in Jesus' mind, an absolute necessity that he suffers and dies. Why? Because Jesus knows there is no other way to renew the world and save sinners than by taking their place and shedding his blood. And this divine must implies that the Son of Man must suffer because it is the will of God. Christ's death is part of God's plan. Must is a divine imperative. It was the will of God that he be crushed. 
because nothing else could save wayward sinners. It took the perfect blood of the God-man to atone for our sins. There's no other way. The plan before the foundation of the world was that the second person of the Trinity would come, take on flesh, live the perfect life we failed to live, and die in place of sinners, absorbing the wrath of God that our rebellion and our idolatry is stored up. It isn't as if God created the world, saw people fall, looked at the world and goes, yikes, what should we do about all this sin business? The plan has always been for Jesus to die in our stead because that's how sinful we are. That's how loved we are. Jesus says, I must suffer. He's under divine imperative to suffer so that when he comes back as judge, those who are his won't be crushed, but will be vindicated. I don't know if Donald Gray Barnhouse is a name familiar to any of you. He's a pastor in Philadelphia at the 10th Presbyterian Church for 33 years in the first half of the 20th century. Well, his wife passed away of cancer in her 30s, leaving Barnhouse uh, with four children, all younger than 12. When they were driving, when he was driving his children to the funeral, a, a large truck pulled past them in the left lane and it cast its shadow over them. So Barnhouse asked his children, would you rather be run over by the truck or the shadow of the truck? His 11-year-old answered, shadow, of course. And then Barnhouse said to them, well, that's what has happened to your mother. Only the shadow of death has passed over her because the real truck of death itself ran over Jesus. And because death crushed Jesus and we believe in him, now the only thing that could come over us is the shadow of death, and the shadow of death is but my entrance into glory. Jesus died in part so that when he comes back as judge, we won't taste the full force of the truck of death, as it were. Jesus took the full force of wrath and hell so that we would experience merely the shadow. Because Jesus suffered, your suffering in the end will be temporary and it will be shown to have been for a purpose. But don't miss the incredible picture we have of Jesus here. Do you see it? He is shown as a king never seen before and never seen since. He is shown here as both a sufferer and as a triumphing king. He is shown as someone who purposefully allowed himself to be conquered and the one who will come back to conquer. He was at once like a sheep silent before its shears who will come again as a ruler that cannot be escaped from. When he descended in his first advent, he was purposefully vulnerable, taking weakness upon himself, laying down his life for his enemies. But in his second advent, he will come as a mighty ruler who puts down his enemies once and for all while lifting up those who are his. We see both these dimensions at play in Jesus in this text. He is under divine compulsion to die. It was the will of God that he be crushed, and he does so willingly. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising shame for you and for me. So that if we bend knee to him before he returns, we will be those who are on his side. Now, when Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 17, when he said all this, he was on the other side of the cross, wasn't he? The cross was looming before him. And he needed to suffer and die before he could return. So what does this mean? 
It means that we are, at present, in the last days. It means the end of the age is impending. It means that since Jesus suffered and was rejected, then rose and ascended to the right hand of Father, that the return he is speaking of in this text can happen at any moment. So let's put together what we have so far. Jesus' return will be sudden, it's imminent. He must suffer many things and be rejected before that happens. That has happened in his substitutionary death. Therefore, he can return and close out the age and consummate the kingdom of God at any moment. And this leads us to our third point, number three. Don't be distracted. Don't be distracted. One of the major problems with the fact that people will be looking for signs and that and making their charts and their graphs and write uh, and read these end times books is that they will be distracted from their primary duty, which is discipleship. See, we might say, I think it's fine to be into end times predictions and prophecies. I like reading about these things and I like watching these videos and all that and I don't see the harm. Now here's the harm, okay? Jesus said not to worry about that, <laughs> right? For one, second, if you are busy focusing on things you do not have an explicit call from Jesus to pursue, you will neglect the things that he was explicit about. You could be so devoted to last things that you forget about the first things. You could be so into trying to predict the end that you forsake what you should be doing in the meantime, which is following Jesus in obedience in response to his lavish grace. You can be distracted from the course of discipleship by being overly concerned with the times and the seasons. You can be distracted from cross-bearing and loving neighbor because you're too caught up in whether or not the latest news story corresponds with what you read in the Bible. See, it's like, you remember Jesus when he ascended in Acts 1? You guys remember that? He was taken up, and the apostles just sort of stood around. Do you remember? They were just looking up in those clouds to the point that a couple angels had to come next to them and say, what are you just standing here for? Look at him in heaven. He's going to come back the way he left. Get to work. It's possible to be so focused on the end that we forget there is an age to live in right now. That we have a vapor's worth of life on this earth to follow in discipleship and reach a dying world. There is too much that Jesus actually told us to do in response to the gospel in glad obedience to be bogged down and distracted by things he told us either not to do or didn't give us instructions to do, like be overly fixated on the end. Here's what you need to know. The end is coming, yes? And with it, Jesus as ruler and judge. That's what you need to know. Until then, ordinary discipleship is the order of the day. That's not the only or even primary way in which we could be distracted from what matters most, is it? See, most of you probably aren't going to be given into reading all these goofy books and going to these goofy conferences and watching these goofy videos, are you? But look what Jesus says next that we could get distracted with. He says when he returns, it will be like times of Noah and just like the days of Lot. Okay, in what sense? Verse 27, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving to marriage. Then Noah entered the ark, the flood came, they were destroyed. Verse 28, in the days of Lot, people were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. Then Lot left Sodom, and the city was destroyed. 
In other words, people were conducting normal affairs, right? People were doing their normal daily practices. People were going on with life and ignoring God. People were celebrating, they were doing business, they were planning for the future, and they were indifferent to the things of God and were therefore unprepared for Him, and then judgment came. Let me ask this, okay? This isn't a setup, all right? Is eating and drinking and marrying and being given into marriage wrong? Is that wrong? Is buying and selling and building and planting wrong? No. So what's the problem? There's a problem. The problem was... The people were indifferent and inattentive to God. You see, they were so preoccupied with their lives and their relationships and their futures and their possessions and their planning that they had no thought of God or eternity. They were living for the moment and not with the end in view. There was no urgency about the things of God, just self-indulgence. And then the end came. And that's how it will be when Jesus comes. Are we not in danger of the same sorts of things? Are we not easily given to the busyness of life? Are we not easily distracted by the things that we have going on? Is it not the easiest thing in the world to slip into a routine wherein what we and what our family has going on is the most real important thing to us? And all the while we could be neglecting the kingdom of God. We, we can be forsaking discipleship. We could be so busy with our little lives and our little kingdoms and our little schedules that we could give no thought to eternity or the kingdom of God. We're too busy living in the moment, which makes us indifferent to the things of the kingdom. But that's the rub, right? All the things that people in Noah and Lot's day were doing were good things. Doing business, getting married, growing crops. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Nothing is wrong with that. What's wrong with being busy? What's wrong with filling your schedule to the brim? You have good reasons for all that, don't you? You could justify if I sat down with you with your busy little schedule. You could justify every single thing you do, right? You, you might even have long-term reasons for them, but not long-term enough. There's more beyond this world. There's more beyond this life alone. There's a kingdom to live for. There's a king coming. And will he find you too busy with the daily affairs to care for the kingdom of Christ? The urgency of the kingdom of God in an age of self-indulgence and moral indifference is the very point at which John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress starts. Everyone thinks, even if you haven't read the book, you know the story, everyone thinks Christian, the main character, is nuts. When he says that he's leaving the comfort of his city to head to the celestial city because he's learned that the city will be burned with fire from heaven. And along, and along his journey, Christian comes to Vanity Fair and it runs all year round. He can't go around it. He has to go right through it. And what did he find in Vanity Fair? It actually had some things that aren't all that bad. It had houses, it had land, trades, places, honors, promotions, titles, Wives, husbands, children, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, around-the-clock entertainment like juggling and games and amusement. And Christian stood out from everybody in the city because he placed such little values on their wares. He just looked up 
the whole time, signifying that his trade and commerce were in heaven, is what Bunyan said. Now, Christian eventually made it through after some run-ins with people uh, there who didn't take kindly to him not being like them. But what if Christian had given himself over to what Vanity Fair had to offer? What if he got distracted by its wares? What if he only actually bought into the things that aren't sinful? Well, he never would have made it to the celestial city, would he? Jesus' point here isn't to not marry, nor buy, nor sell, nor plant, or any such thing. But he's warning us that it is possible to be so distracted with the daily routines of life and even good things in the world that you miss out on the kingdom of God. Do you think that's possible? People can be indifferent to the kingdom of God because of the things of earth. Jesus is rather encouraging the opposite, isn't he? Be focused on the kingdom of God. Be indifferent to the things of earth. Del Ralph Davis says, it's, it is the frenzied pace of one thing after another that loses sight of the coming of the Son of Man. When, says Jesus, the end comes and you're on your roof, if you're not ready for the end, you'll be concerned with your possessions. You'll want to go downstairs and get your stuff and then try to flee. Jesus says, this will not work. Then he brings up Lot's wife. Look at verse 22. This is a command. Remember Lot's wife? What did Lot's wife do? She was given a chance to flee the destruction that was coming upon Sodom, and indeed, she began to flee with her husband, but she did what? She looked back like she wasn't supposed to, and so she died. What is Jesus illustrating here? What is he trying to tell us? He's showing us the consequences of holding on to life's possessions. Lot's wife identified Sodom as home and she looked longingly back, and so she died. James Edwards says, even if one, like Lot's wife, escapes the destruction of Sodom, but looks back with longing on what might have been, one's heart belongs to something other than the gospel. When, when Lot's wife looked back at Sodom, she was looking back on what she valued the most in life. It was her home and her possessions. Jesus says, if what you desire most is something other than me when the end comes, your fate can match hers. That's a serious warning, isn't it? It reminds me of one of my, you've heard me use this illustration before. It's one of my favorite illustrations on this topic. It's a scene uh, from the first Harry Potter book and movie. And the main character, Harry, you guys know Harry, finds a mirror in an empty room. And when he looks into the mirror, he sees his parents in the reflection for the first time in his life because they were killed when he was a baby. And they're surrounding him, they're smiling, they have their hands on his shoulders. And so he runs and he goes and tells his best friend Ron about what he saw. And he brings him back to the mirror thinking that Ron will see Ron's parents too when he looks in the mirror. But instead, Ron sees himself as a captain of the sports team holding the championship cup and he's standing alone with all his siblings jealous of him in the corner because he's better than them. Well, Harry doesn't understand what the mirror is about until later when his mentor explains that it's called Erised, which since it's a kid's book, it's not very subtle. It's desire spelled backwards. And basically, when you look into this mirror, you see the deepest desire of your heart. Now, if such a mirror existed, Lot's wife would have seen her home in Sodom with its possessions and all the things of earth that she loved most. She wouldn't see God. She wouldn't see the kingdom. That's why she looked back. Now, if such a mirror existed... 
What Jesus is after is for you to look in the mirror and not see your house and not see your car and not see your trophies or your bank account balance or your prize this or your favorite that. Nor does Jesus even desire that you look and see your family or yourself. What should you see instead and desire most of all? Is him. If that's the case, you won't be someone who looks back. You won't be someone who gets so bogged down in your own life that you care not for the kingdom of God. But you'll be someone who can be in the world and not of it. You'll be someone who lives for Jesus, who you define as not only your greatest desire, but who you define as where life is found, along with your meaning and purpose and value that you crave. Tom Schreiner said the question regards what humans seek and desire. If they desire to preserve life in this world, then like Lot's life, Wife, life will be lost in the end of the age. But those whose life lose their life for Christ's sake, who long for his return, who love Jesus as their greatest treasure, will find their lives. See, Jesus isn't here. Don't misunderstand. He isn't here encouraging the true disciple to quit their job and go live a life of solitude on some mountain somewhere. And all you do is pray and fast and read your Bible and you just wait for the end. Okay? It's not always encouraging. But he is challenging us, as he usually does, where our true allegiance and priorities lie. It's possible to want to be saved by Jesus and to want to escape the fire and still be holding on to this life. It's possible to want to avoid wrath and still serve the things of earth. It's possible to want to be in the kingdom of God while serving self and being more devoted to your own kingdom and life than Jesus is. And just as the paradox of a king who comes once as a suffering servant and then again as ruling conqueror, we have another paradox in verse 33, don't we? If you try to preserve your life, what will you get? You will lose it in the end. But if you're willing to endure suffering for Christ's sake, what will happen? you will get life in the end. That's a paradox. See, all of us, all we're told in this world is to make preserving our lives and comfort and happiness the number one priority. Is that not what we're told? Through every medium? Do what you want, how you want, however you want to do it, and don't let anyone tell you differently. The biggest heresy in our age is not being true to yourself. And in pursuing comfort and meaning and happiness in this world, they say, you will eventually find it. And you know what? If you pursue comfort with all your might, you may very well get to the point where you feel like you've arrived and you're content. Probably not, but maybe you will. And then what? And then what? Then Jesus returns and you are judged under his sovereign boot because you sought meaning in this life rather than in the one to come. Is that worth it? That's what he's asking. Is it worth gaining the whole world if you lose your soul? You live for this life and not the one to come. You weren't willing to be too uncomfortable or too inconvenienced or sacrificial because Jesus wasn't seen as worth it. So you have all the comfort you'll ever get. That's a grim picture, isn't it? That's the one Jesus is painting here, is it not? He is saying that if you are a disciple of his who lives for him, 
as imperfect as that might be, then all the suffering that you do in terms of killing sin or obedience or reckless abandoned discipleship or not having the respect and adulation and reputation from your peers and then prizing Jesus above all things, you'll be doing two things in all of that. Number one, you'll be like him. Because he got his glory and triumph through suffering. And two, you'll be vindicated in the end. It will all be worth it. So the question that is being asked is this, is Jesus, ask this in your own heart, is Jesus worth more to you? Is he worth more than life itself? Is he enough to keep from getting distracted like the people of Noah's day, like the people of Lot's day, like Lot's wife? And if so, are you living with the end in view? Or will you be caught off guard when the end does come? Ah, but see, finally, there's one more warning that we need to consider. Quickly and forth. Don't wait until it's too late. Fourth, don't wait until it's too late. If everything we said is true, then the kingdom is coming in fullness. It's coming suddenly. It's coming without warning. It's imminent. Then is there time to lose? Because here's what's more, right? It's inevitable and it's inescapable. There is no way out of the coming of the Son of Man. Every single person will have to reckon with Jesus when he returns. See, see what it says? There will be two in a bed. One will be taken. One will be left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken. One will be left. The implication is that one is judged and one is vindicated. One will be delivered, one will be cast away. One will be saved, the other damned. The point is this, there is no escaping when Jesus returns. It will be too late to decide for Jesus if you haven't decided for him by then. And there are only two fates. There's no third fate, there's no wait and see. There's no neutral ground, there's no middle ground. Either you are in the kingdom of God or you are not. Either you will bend knee to Jesus in this life and confess him as Lord and King, or you will do it when he returns, and then it's too late. You have to choose, and you will, and you are. The disciples ask this silly question in verse 37, where? Where, Lord? Pharisees ask, when, Jesus? The disciples ask, where? Where is this going to happen exactly? And Jesus answers, where the corpse is, there's the vultures gather. <laughs> What's he saying? We know when we see vultures in the sky, what? Something dead, right? Below. Jesus says, on that day, just look to where the vultures are. That's where judgment is. What he's saying most of all is this. Don't worry about where. Worry about whether or not you are on his side when it happens. Would you wait? Are you waiting, friend? Are you waiting, following Jesus the way you know you ought? Are you waiting to submit to him in the first place? Maybe you've never given allegiance to him at all. Would you wait to bend knee to him? You, my Christian friend, would you put off living for Christ? Would you? Maybe you can't take your eyes off all your stuff. Would you wait to forsake them in favor of Jesus? 
Maybe you're so distracted by your busyness and your kingdom, your rulership, your schedule, that you don't really think about or live for the kingdom of God to speak of. Would you wait to start? Would you say tomorrow? Or next month? Or next year? Or when I'm an empty nester? Or when I retire? When I don't have this or that going on? Or when things slow down in life? Or when I have less going on? Or when I get out of this or that season? Would you wait? In light of this king, would you wait? What if Jesus comes before then? What if we die before then? Will we say to him that we had more important stuff going on? Let me ask it this way, okay? When the end does come, will any of us wish we had been busier in this life? You think? Man, I wish I was busier. We wish giving more ourselves to more things. We wish we pursued more hobbies, watched more TV, scrolled more of social media, kept more to ourselves, done more for ourselves, been more comfortable and satisfied in this world, or will we wish we would have had a more eternal vision that's centered on this glorious Christ who came as a lamb to slaughter, but will come again as conqueror. This is indeed a text that is graphic, yes? This is why we preach through books. I would not pick this text just on its own, okay? And it seems graphic, it seems maybe even grim, but do you see the love of Christ in it? Now, do you? The conquering king was willing to suffer and die for you. He could have skipped all that and gone straight to judgment, couldn't he? But instead he came and he died and he suffered so that you could reign with him in the end. It was because of his love for you that he wants you to be with him. And he made a way for that to happen. His desire is not that you be taken away in judgment. It's that you reign with him. And in his grace and mercy and forbearance, he's giving you this opportunity to call on him and live for him, but this opportunity will not last forever. Allow me to close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. This is how he concluded his sermon on verse 22. He said this, Within a short time, there will be an end to all the opportunities and means of grace you now enjoy. Within a short time, at the very longest, there will be an end of all exhortations, invitations, warnings, entreaties, and it may be when they come to an end, you will wish to have them back again. Would it not be far better than you should use them now? Escape and find life in Christ, for the lamp of life shall never be kindled again to give you a second opportunity. While yet mercy's gate stands open, enter in and find eternal life. For if it is once shut, it will never move open its hinges again, and you will be shut out, world without end. God grant his blessing upon these feeble words for Jesus' sake.